You're listening to the Tranquility Tribe podcast, an empowering space for all parents from conception to childhood. In this podcast, you'll explore your birth options, hear from experts in the field, learn to embrace self-indulgence, and prepare yourself for parenthood with Haiti. She's a coffee connoisseur, lover of deep belly laughs, a big-time tailgater, and your neighborhood birth junkie. From Mississippi to Massachusetts and everywhere in between, here's your host, Hee. Hello, villagers. I'm so excited to share episode number five of the Tranquility Tribe podcast with y'all today. I have a dear friend of mine on the show today, and I'm so excited to share all of her knowledge with you. Since the last few years, I'm working alongside Alyssa, and she has a master's in early childhood education, so we uh, we were teachers together in an early childhood uh, lab school at a, a local university. She has created an emotional processing method and is writing a book. She is a fellow doula. Uh, she's currently still teaching, and my personal favorite is she has created this amazing village for parents. Alyssa is the founder of Seed and Sew, a parenting support organization. Alyssa, welcome. Hey, thank you. So good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh my gosh, thank you for, uh, for being here and joining us. Tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do um, about Seed and Sew. Yeah, so I have worked with families over the years uh, in a number of different ways. I was a nanny. I was a live-in nanny, a live-out nanny. Um, I've been a teacher from infant, toddler, preschool, kindergarten. Um, I've worked with families in many different ways. In the home, I've been a sleep consultant, an uh, education and behavioral consultant. And then within the last couple of years, I really started to get into emotional development and I started to realize the impact of um, serving these tiny humans with all the tools and resources we can from infancy and what a difference it made in their development as toddlers, as two-year-olds and then three-year-olds and beyond and their ability to absorb content and continue to build social relationships and really grow and develop when they could be emotionally regulated. And so I started Seed to bring parents together and it really build that village with experts as well. I found that a lot of parents were in the trenches together and were asking these questions to each other and really just saying like, yeah, I'm here with you, but didn't really know where to go from there. And so the mission for Seed is to support these parents with their own resources and tools to support kids' emotional development and provide them sleep support, and then questions all along the way. Uh, I spoke with a parent earlier today about screen time and how that plays into tiny humans' lives. So really just trying to support families uh, with experts in the field to provide them answers to these questions that are never-ending. That's amazing. I absolutely love that. So one of the first things that I learned about you and was so um, magnetic for me, for you, was that you also understood that um, we were not meant to raise children by ourselves. And it was really, really amazing for me to hear someone kind of speak my language and to put 
the things that I believed into such articulate words. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think that as like we've grown and generations have, have evolved, we've moved farther and farther away from families and, you know, into cities and outside of these villages where kids aren't, we're not sharing who's doing childcare, who's bringing these kids to school or, you know, popping over to help someone out or drop off dinner. And it's, it's really, really hard to be a parent today. And I think a lot of it is that we're A, in isolation and B, um, I mean, fantastically, we have two working parents most of the time now, um, a lot more women in the workforce, which is fantastic. But with that came this added weight of now what do we do with the tiny humans and who's caring for them and what does the quality of their care look like? And then who does the things around the house? All those things that when you were staying at home were also put on your plate and it's not the case anymore. So how do we all pitch in together and help raise these little ones and have answers for each other and not just how, who do we pay for the babysitters and, and things like that, but who's coming over to just hang out and make dinner or say, Hey, I know that your partner's out of town this weekend and we're going to pop over and take your kid for the afternoon or who, who are these people and how are we all working together? That's so amazing to hear. I just, I, Absolutely love hearing um, talking to you about the village and also hearing you talk about the village and your um, your vision for how our village could could transform and be this really supportive community of all parents um, in all walks of life. So one of the things that kind of pops into mind when I think about the village is how tired parents are. <laughs> I know one of the things that you do um, is sleep consulting. Um, so tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into that and, um, and then we'll go from there. Absolutely. So I've been doing sleep consulting for about five years now. Um, it, it kind of fell into my lap. See, I, I started to notice that these tiny humans weren't, weren't sleeping uh, based on developmental milestones. And my, my knowledge in child development really started to come into play here. And I was just observing things that were, were deeper than they're just not sleeping. And when I started to see those things, I started to put together a like, bigger picture. What's going on here? What's going on beneath the surface? And then I came across a mentor who had been running a sleep support business for years. She ran a business here in Boston called Isis Parenting. Um, she ran the sleep portion of that and uh, I was hoping to work for them and then they closed down right as I was about to apply. <laughs> so I sought her out and she mentored me through um, all the other the biological pieces and uh, what else besides development was going on with sleep. And, you know, it's a, such a common thing with our parents today, and especially with more people going back to work, that we need tiny humans to be sleeping as much as we can get them to sleep so that everyone else can function as well as the tiny humans functioning. Um, and so I was trained and started doing consultations on the side, and now it's very much a part of, of Seed and So's mission is helping parents get these answers that so many of us have questions and um, they're, they're all very, very valid and there's nothing, uh, any, no one can come over and make your child just sleep, right? Like there are a few things with 
tiny humans. We can't make them do. We can't make them eat. We can't make them sleep. We can't make them go to the bathroom. Um, we can make them put on their shoes. We can make them do other things, but there are a few things we can't make them do. And so parents need access to resources and support to answer these questions for them and be with them to every step of the way to kind of counsel them through like what does this look like what's going on and how do we how do we best support this tiny human so everyone can sleep I think it's also really neat to um to think that you have sleep as one piece of seed and so and emotional development as the other piece with parent support but it's um, known that sleep and that emotional development piece are so intertwined and they're they're like intrinsically connected mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and there's a lot of stigma that goes with both um, from where your kid sleeps to whether or not you let them cry uh, to how you respond there's there's a lot of stigma and um, kind of information on either side that it, it's hard to know like what are the facts and where is this really coming from a lot of contradicting information out there. And everyone has an opinion. Um, <laughs> they sure I, <laughs> I'm the queen of saying, um, you know, everyone has an opinion, but this is your baby. This is your life. This is your choice. Um, it's something that the families I work with here probably on a daily basis. Um, so one of the most common questions I hear from new parents is, when will my baby sleep through the night. Um, I always try and explain to them that until four months, their brains don't really do that. The day and night don't really matter. Um, can you touch a little bit on, you know, realistic expectations for newborns and infants to help our listeners kind of understand what they might be going through right now or what to expect in the future? Or maybe it's something that you had years ago and this will be an aha moment for you <laughs> yeah absolutely so that's a very very common question in general and the idea of like what is sleeping through the night is the first thing to tackle um, for some people sleeping through the night means you put your kid down at seven and they don't wake up till seven um, I got some bad news for you that like that's atypical <laughs> uh, it's atypical for kids across the board not a lot of kids are 12 hour sleepers um, and so that's that's step number one and then the next thing we look at is okay so if if it's not 12 hours what is it what does it really look like well what we want um after four months of age is for the first six hours to be consolidated and we consider that having slept through the night so if you put your kid down at seven and they wake up at one we've got sleeping through the night there. They have consolidated six hours and then they're gonna wake up periodically to feed from there. Um, however, before four months of age, your tiny human isn't producing melatonin. So uh, we are really working with sleep pressure, um, which is being the right amount of tired. An overtired tiny human does not sleep very well. Um, and a child who's not tired enough, if they like start to show a couple signs of being tired and we immediately put them down, but they haven't really had enough awake time, they might only take a 15, 20 minute nap. Um, so it's, it's finding that magic window that we call that sleep pressure. And then you're also working with food, um, breastfeeding formula, whatever you're doing here will play a role. Uh, and there are so many different books and methods that'll tell you don't breastfeed them to sleep or do breastfeed them to sleep or you know there are going to be multiple messages here and uh yeah good news it doesn't really matter uh, whether or not you feed them to sleep 
as long as they have enough food and they can sustain. And then we're looking at attachment. Um, so we want them to feel safe and loved. And when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which are the most basic needs at the bottom, um, it's like the food triangle or food pyramid, uh, but with, with development and psychology and with Maslow points out that you need, your, you need to feel safe you need to feel loved before you can do greater things. And so we're really focusing on that attachment. And There's no spoiling a baby. You can't hold a baby too much. And all those things will really play into their sleep. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, so it is super fascinating to me um, when, when, parents want their children to be on a schedule right after <laughs> yeah. um, the melatonin piece is always such a game changer um, I I almost wish that it was something that childbirth ed classes told you or mm. nutritions or it was on a little handout when you you know first had a baby there there are just so many fascinating things about uh, the the tiny human brain that I feel like we don't have so much access to. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one of my favorite things that Seed and So does for for families, as well as connect you with other families who are probably going through the same thing. Yeah. So I, I think a huge point that you just pointed out is that there aren't a whole lot of people who are trained in sleep, including pediatricians. And oftentimes, uh, a pediatrician is the first place that a parent turns to for questions on sleep or feeding or development. And they're not trained in any of that. They're fantastic and they serve a lovely role. I work with a lot of pediatricians very closely, um, but they're trained in the medicine. And so they might not even know your child's not producing melatonin yet, or they might not know what's going to play into getting them more sleep or better sleep. And so, really, what we're looking at is for your children in the first four months for about every 90 minutes to two hours for them to have a nap we more so than the length of their naps or the amount of sleep they're getting throughout the day and night we want to look at the amount of awake time we don't want that awake time to be too long that is a huge part of sleep in that first four months and oftentimes we'll see kids and we'll, we might feed them when they're really tired we're trying to figure out what those cues are but really just tracking, I use, I use an app called Daily Connect to track uh, the sleep because let's get real, when you're that tired, you have no idea when they, how, what their sleep looked like yesterday. Um, I'll, I'll ask parents actually at the beginning of consultations, like, you know, what's, what's the general pattern looking like? Is there a pattern? Kind of give me an overview of the last few days. And oftentimes they don't really know. They're like, oh, I think they did. And these are some kids who are just having one nap a day at this point. But when you're sleep deprived, it's so hard to recall all that information. So I like to use an app or um, even just like a piece of paper that you can kind of highlight or shade and just track like, when are they sleeping from this time to this time? Great. And then they wake up. Now we know when they're starting to fuss, maybe it's an hour and a half later, you can check and see, oh, They've been awake for an hour and a half. They're probably tired. Um, and getting them just, even if it's a cat nap, even if it's 15 minutes, just something to, to sustain. We don't really start to see uh, a real nap schedule until like four months. 
That is so cool. That uh, that four-month period is such a huge milestone for so much stuff, emotional intelligence, um, sleep, physical development, uh, all, all of it. Um, so through my work with you, I have learned about the various approaches to sleep. Um, I find them all very fascinated. I also have worked with several families who have chosen different approaches. So I've been able to learn um, from you, the expert, but also in homes from families who are um, using these different approaches. Do you have a specific method or approach that's your favorite or your go-to or something that you know is a surefire win? Yeah, so uh, the long answer, or the short answer is no. Uh, the long answer is that I, um, most of my consultations are sleep pressure, to be honest. It's adjusting nap time and making sure kids are awake for the right amount of time. So I would say probably 90% of uh, the problems I see with sleep come back to sleep pressure and uh, really adjusting people's timing of things. Um, and sometimes we'll play with light and noise. Light plays a huge role in sleep. Uh, you'll hear about blackout curtains and noise machines and uh, I love them. I, I wish they were in every childcare center in every house. Um, they light goes into our eyes and sends a message to our brain that it's it's time to wake up. And so it's more that um, in the morning when that sun is rising, they see light. Their tiny human's going to start waking up. Or at nap time after one REM cycle, that thirty minutes, then they're exposed to light. They're going to be like, okay, we can get up. If you had them in a dark room, you're going to have a longer nap time probably. The white noise uh, does not induce sleep, but it protects it. It makes it so that when they're coming into light sleep at the end of a REM cycle, because everybody goes through REM cycles, we do it as adults as well. You'll probably every hour and a half at night roll over or move in some manner. That's because you're coming into light sleep and you're essentially waking up and going back into another cycle. Um, but if there's noise when you're in light sleep, it can fully wake you up and make it much harder for you to go back down. So the white noise kind of drowns out the other noise to help you continue to sleep. And it's a lifesaver in childcare centers and, um, and nap times. I've had kids napping in like construction outside and white noise really saves the day. So those, those two things, uh, light and sound, and then really working on sleep pressure. And then if we have to get to behavior, which again, like really maybe even less than 10% of the time I'm, I'm working on behavior, uh, then my favorite method at that point is uh, doing a Ferber method. Ferber gets a bad rap because a lot of people consider it cry it out, which is very, very different and something I don't subscribe to. Um, Ferber is doing intervals. So you might start with putting your child to bed, going through your routine, and then you say goodnight, you leave the room, they're crying, and you let them cry for a designated amount of time. Some people start with one minute. And then they go back in, they soothe, same thing, they leave. And then they let them cry for maybe three minutes and then they go back in. So here the idea is that we're telling the tiny human, you're not alone, I hear you, but still sending that message that it's bedtime and you're able to do this. You can, you can put yourself to sleep here. Um, so we're still supporting them uh, while helping them build this skill of being able to soothe themselves to sleep. That is um, so fascinating to hear you talk about all that stuff, but specifically the cry it out method. So I was actually just recently explaining to a parent how the cry it out method um, 
has been linked to various outcomes, and one of those being a physical and structural change um, in the makeup of, of your child's brain if you were to let them cry it out. What are your thoughts here? Can you give us um, more of a scientific view of, of kind of what happens when you let your child cry it out versus the Ferber method or um, some other method? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's a hard line to find. But there's a difference in cries, right? And this is what I try to teach and talk to my parents about. So I'll ask them, when, you're, when your child's in their room and they're crying, if they were a teenager, what would they be saying? Would they be like, I don't want to go to bed? Or would they be yelling and saying, I'm scared? And those are two very different things. And you can, you can discern it from, from that cry. And you'll know when it goes there. And if you're not sure, they're probably not in distress. Uh, you'll be sure. And so when they are in distress, that's when we want to always answer their cry. Um, because now we're looking at the emotional development piece. We're looking at brain development. And what we want them to know is that if they're ever in distress, we're going to be there to support them. It's a message we want them to, to receive from us. Um, you know, if they are ever really hurt, we're going to be there to support them. If they're ever really scared, we're going to be there to support them. And so with cry it out, the idea is you're in your room at whatever time and I'll see you in the morning. I'm not coming back no matter what. Right. And so, um, you know, then we have this, this child who could end up feeling very, very scared and uh, very alone and not supported. And that's not our goal here. Right. And so there's a lot of fear around the cry it out method and, you know, for, from the, brain development perspective, that's fair. But I think what has happened on the flip side is that now people are really worried about their kids crying in general. Um, so I end up working more with people who are definitely against cry it out, but also are really nervous about their kids crying. Um, and I think this is, this is a topic we need to kind of look more at and dive, dive into further because they don't have words. And so crying is how they're gonna communicate with us. They're going to let us know when they're mad. They're going to let us know when they're sad. They're going to let us know when they're frustrated. And every time that we do a new transition or we're developing a new routine for them, they're going to be confused. They're not sure what's going on. And they're going to cry to communicate that with us. And those cries, those cries are very different than distress cries. Yeah, so I can, I can definitely speak to um, those two cries being... Um, extremely different so one really hits you um like deep down in your soul you know it really it makes you feel all the feels um and then one you can totally resonate with them because how frustrating is it to have someone tell you that you need to go to bed and you're really not tired or you don't want to or you don't think you're tired um for sure i understand how frustrating that is um but I think it's really important to set those boundaries, which is uh, something that, you know, everybody who ever is, is interacting with parents probably is able to say um, part of supporting parents is learning to help set healthy boundaries and expectations. Yeah. Well, and I think when people are turning to the cried out method, it's because we don't have enough support for parents. They don't know what else to do and they don't know where else to turn. Yeah. It's out of desperation almost. I Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what I'm hoping to bridge with Seed and So is to give them resources and a place to turn. We have a bunch of free resources and freebies on, on sleep and naps and all that jazz. 
um, and more to come to just help give people answers to these questions that are so frequent. I love it so much. And you connect them with other parents. I think that is huge, huge, huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everyone who does a consultation with us is in a private private group with any other families who have done consultations as well so that we can all support each other on this journey. Um, there are so many parents who are in the trenches with them and now they have the tools to support each other. And I think that that's invaluable. From, um, from your home in your cozies, which is something you say <laughs> so, so much. It's uh, something that I call an Alyssa-ism. So. <laughs> It's so true. I'm in my cozies right now. And there you go. <laughs> so we know that children should be sleeping in rooms that are, you know, kept cool and dark, plus a white noise machine. Is there any other piece of kind of secret advice that you would give expectant or new parents um, that maybe are about to have a baby or are, you know, really, really in the trenches of a newborn? Um, what would you tell them? Yeah, um, I would tell them that there is so much fear-based information out there in general um, for parenting and to try and really look at that and if they're feeling fear and when they read something to A, pause and, and B, look for other resources because if it's not there to support you and give you what you can do and is only telling you what you can't do, it's not the resource for you. And, um, you know, you're going to find all different ways of doing things. There's going to be an opinion about everything and you're going to have to filter those out. I, uh, I was just in that screen time discussion I was having this mom was like, you know, when I reached out with this question, I even like reached out and was like, I'm about to tell you that my kid has seen TV. (laughs) uh, You know, there's just so much judgment that comes with everything. And uh, we've got to be able to filter it out. I mean, most babies sleep best on their stomach or on their side, yet there's so much fear-based information out there around SIDS. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's coming from a good place, right? We're trying to reduce um, infant deaths, which of course we want to reduce. But when we're looking at those, it's not usually kids who are in a crib without loose blankets and in a house with no smoke and um, we know without added things going on in that crib, it's, that's not the scenario we're looking at. So if a kid is in a crib with a sleep sack and the whole environment is the way that it should be, and then they're on their stomach, they're usually in a good place and they're going to sleep better. Um, so, but there's so much fear there. And then even to go on, um, with feeding, there's, you know, I mentioned the breastfeeding to sleep or the feeding in general to sleep and, I have had so many families reach out and say, hey, I want to do this consultation, but I really like feeding my kid to sleep. Are you going to tell me I can't do that anymore? And every time I'm like, no. Um, You know, we might find down the road that your kid's having a hard time syncing their cycles and we might have to support them in other ways afterward. But that just because you're feeding them to sleep doesn't mean they can't sync their cycles, uh, which is what we're looking at, right? When we say that like they're going to be dependent on you feeding them to sleep. If they ever are sleeping more than 30 minutes at a time, they're sinking cycles. So that's not the case. Um, But there's so much fear-based information out there. So yeah, I guess my piece of advice, my little secret tip would be to really look for resources that are giving you ways to to support you and that are telling you things you can do and not just what you can't do. 
and resources that are meeting you where you are. So I think a huge piece of um, what you said just now is that uh, for me, it was that, that that parent came to you in fear already. She was scared you were going to take something that was really important to her away from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was looking for somebody that was going to meet her where she was. So I think that it's important to find resources that support support the journey that you're on and and yeah they tell you what you can do um that's huge that's really important i'm so glad that that was your your last little secret piece of advice so if expectant um parents new parents parents of tots wanted to get in touch with you see your work schedule your services where where do they find you how do they connect with you yeah so um i have a website for seed it's uh, seed and so sew dot org. Uh, they can also connect with me on Instagram at seed dot and dot so sew. Um, and we have a Facebook page. And um, I personally have an Instagram, although realistically, I'm on seed and so way more than my personal Instagram. Um, and hot tip, we have a podcast coming out for you all soon as well. Um, so you can follow along on Instagram and stay tuned for when that's launching. Great information overload for parents. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, this, is, this is awesome. Just so much support all around you. Alyssa, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. For all of our listeners, Seed and Sew offers an exclusive discount on sleep support for all TBH clients. And as always, Village members, find your tribe, love them hard. Did you know you can join our online tribes? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching The Tranquility Tribe Podcast on Facebook, and our Instagram tribe is at Tranquility by Hehe. If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquilitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers. Did you know that you can join our online tribes? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching the Tranquility Tribe podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram tribe is Tranquility by Hehe. If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquilitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers.